Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the third and final part of this series on an antidote to stupidity. Presumptuous though it may be, yes, this is a curriculum. That is a program for study. What follow? Designate terrains of practice. Or if you prefer, grounds of intellectual exploration or, if you prefer, as embodied practice items. What I give is a cursory take on some curriculum items with a contemplative question or two to consider where appropriate. I would dare say we are required to learn about each of these if we take the practicing life seriously. Of course, this is not a dictatorship, the choice is yours, but the recommendation has been made. Now I could start off by listing the key themes that overlap with Buddhism from academia or philosophy. It might include theories of knowledge, ethics, mind, religion, hermeneutics, politics, and so on. The crossover with science would include physics, cognitive science, biology, etc., and the humanities and social sciences would have to include linguistics, anthropology, sociology, psychology, just to name the most obvious ones. But this is, frankly, already too much for most, and where would they even start to unpack such broad fields of human knowledge and struggle, especially if they are new to such fields? And then how much of each would be enough? If we take our understanding of those we know a thing or two about already, then perhaps we can personalise what stands out as important as themes that impact our lives as practitioners, and start there. That is more or less the best I can do. Perhaps some of you can do more or better. Now, you will note a lot of overlap between the categories I have chosen below, and it ought to become obvious pretty quickly why as you listen on. We'll see if it works. This is, of course, an experiment, and that's part of the whole point of it. If it does not, then please do better and share. In fact, if you can add in good practice questions of your own, you can do so either at the Imperfect Buddha podcast, where you will find the written version of this text, or over at the speculative non-Buddhism site, which has been reduced to just non-Buddhism of late, and you'll find it there too. I would really encourage you to do so, even if it's only on your own and in your own reflections. If you can manage to consider whatever you come up with as practice items rather than just theory alone, well, I would appreciate it. Let's move on. 
Realism, Realism and, and Idealism. This is the first pairing, and most of what follows appear as pairs. So with its long history, the philosophical debate between these two has occupied much of the history of Western philosophy. For practitioners, it is an essential dialectic to engage with. To what degree do I commit to a world as it is, or attempt to imagine a world that is better, desirable, and to be sought after? Our age continues to struggle with the consequences of this dynamic and its impact on how we see ourselves socially and as practitioners. Whether it be science's dominance of material discourse or the tendency for groups to retreat into idealism to justify their utopian or dystopian fantasies and desires, these two operate in the background of much of our current social discourse and sit at the base of our mountain of concerns about the practicing life and what it can or should do for us. From the political to the personal, from the economic to the educational, we ignore the tension between what is perceived as real and what is imagined at our peril. <laughs> Practice questions. There are three of them. One. What hope fills my practicing life, which desires feed my reasons for sitting and engaging in the practices I care for. Okay, I'm cheating. That's number one, but there are two of them. Fake two. To what degree do I use goals with realistic ends to guide practice or marinade in the conviction of good endings, great enlightenment hanging out just down the road somewhere, or simply live inside the idea of a thing rather than venture into its real-world demands? Well, that was more or less one. Three. Do I hold to the idea that there is a greater reality beyond the material physical existence? What are the payoffs in doing so? What do I pay scant attention to by holding on to an invisible possibility of more? Objectivity, Objectivity and, and subjectivity. subjectivity. For spiritual practitioners more broadly, this is a key area for investigation. As non-Buddhism has shown, Buddhists claimed trade in reality and the harnessing of meditation to gain objective understanding of the nature of that reality. Yet, subjectivity dominates more often than not. In fact, the next pairing, to come, will demonstrate how most of what we think is an attempt to interpret rather than describe and confusing the two leads to all kinds of delusion. You could easily spend a couple of years taking what's just been said and applying it to all and every spiritual practice you engage in or have ever thought about engaging in. Now, this point of objectivity and subjectivity is not an invitation to anything goes. The age-old challenge of navigating this dynamic is to see it as such, a movement towards or away from one or the other. No absolutes, merely more objectively located or more absorbed by the subjective. The two must meet at some point and regular dates are preferred if we are all to get beyond our narrative takes and learn from the complex world around us. 
This may not be a technical description of the topic, but it avoids the usual beliefs that can dog this dichotomy by treating them as a relational pair precisely because doing so disrupts the silly notions that we can know objectively, fully, in some sort of final state of liberation from confusion and ignorance, or that all we can ever know is our own mind. There are four themes that follow. 1. What happens if I take my claims about life that are phrased as objective statements and reframe them as, I currently believe, think, assume, that, and then entertain the idea that at best they are probably only partially true? Hmm. 2. When I perceive the world, to what degree are my perceptions caught up in familiar interpretative patterns? Can I suspend such subjective interpretations for periods of time? What changes if I do? 3. Do I believe the line that I will eventually see reality as it is if I just meditate enough? What ideas might challenge this belief? And to what degree would I be willing to suspend it? if just for a while. 4. What implicit values form my habits of subjective over-interpretation? Hmm, you may need some help figuring out the answers to that one. Hermeneutics and Motivated Storytelling As with all these items, there are those who draw totalizing positions from which to pontificate and assert a story. Even those who trade in hermeneutics are guilty of narrative overreach at times. Specifically, those who claim, it's all stories, mate. And presumably, we can but interpret. The objective, the real, are forever beyond our grasp, according to such claimants. The mere fact that overinterpretation is a thing is a reminder that there are degrees to this. Were there not? our legal system would crumble and we would all be lost in solipsistic realms of heaven and hell. At a simple level, we interpret everything, meaning we try to make sense of our experiences in the world. If we consider this process interpretative, then we can relax out of the dichotomy of right or wrong, true or false, and see that there is actually a lot of room to move between those opposites, or that we are, in a sense, forever in relationship to them. This is not a call to relativism, but rather a recognition that we never possess a complete picture of what we interact with. Our perspectives can be correct, true and right, but they always remain positional and to some degree partial and interpretative. Again, the problem lies in our tendency towards overreach and our inability to see the world as not centred around little old me, 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 me. Five areas of inquiry. 1. Which parameters designate the confines of my perceptual interpretations? 2. How willing am I to interpret from other perspectives and be informed by them? 3. Which stories do I hold on to and which ones do I resist? How do they open or close my ability to see more, learn more and experience more? will keep me cosy in my convictions. 4. If my life were a story, what would its title be? 
what might happen if I changed the title or rewrote it from another's perspective. 5. Which stories about meditation, Buddhism, the Buddha do I believe in, like really? What are the consequences of my doing so if I suspend the idea that they are true or false, but merely interpretative ways of thinking about practice and the world of Buddhism? How active am I in their interpretation into my life? Absolutes. Imperfection is a statement on the precarity of absolutes. Yet, we forever find new ways to lust after them. Total answers, black and white ontologies, which unfortunately are all the rage again these days, metaphysics, religious certainty, scientism, we are, let's be honest, beset by calls to end the confusion, clear away the doubt, and get with the program, my program, my guarantees. Yet time and again we find our gurus fail us, our politicians' promises fall flat, and the overly confident boasting of this person or that person is yet another snake oil salesman selling empty promises. The X equals everything crowd are eternally caught in the decisional trap of overreach, and you may want to develop the habit of always taking such claims and claimants with a very big pinch of very critical salt. The idea that God is mum or dad and that all of our would-be gurus are parental figures is not a bad one for understanding the absurdities in investing in other folks' promises of finality. Five areas to consider. 1. How do I sit with the uncertainty that nags away at my conviction that X is always Y? 2. What would happen if I gave up my utopian desire for or my pessimistic dystopian assumption that the world is X? 3. What would happen if I gave up on these damn absolutes? 4. How does the allure of an absolute infiltrate the space of my practice? 5. If we were to entertain the claims of Buddhism regarding final goals as far more earthbound and finite, what might they look like? Are we left with just mindfulness and a bit more patience? Or do more ambitious goals still make sense? Infinity and This topic pushes our dharmic boat out into the waters of physics. Yet philosophy posits the challenge of the possibility of infinity as a question. What changes if its presence or absence is real? Emptiness, God, Buddha nature are all attempts at conceptualizing what are absolutes, aspects of infinity or that which is beyond an endpoint. Finitude really is the great disappointment, no wonder we resist it so much. It is the reminder that we hang around for a while and then we are gone, and that we cannot all be fully realised. We all barter with our inevitable demise, whether that is ignoring it, turning it into an object of desire in the form of a better rebirth, a trip to heaven, or an opportunity to practice the rainbow body or poa or power, or striving after radical life extension, and in the case of techno-utopians, 
the development of technology that will allow the very, very rich to live forever. These two, infinity and finitude, refer to the way we orientate ourselves to the world as well. Is the world fully open or closed? Where do the imaginary confines of my world lie? This also means challenging ideologies that are reconfigurations of monist desire. The singularity is an upcoming one for the fanciful dreamers in Silicon Valley. Absolute DEI is one for the new left. Four topics. One. How much infinity is enough? Two. What payoffs does believing in forever provide? Three. How fully do I accept the real-world confines of my existence? Do I even know where they are, what they are, and where they lie? 4. Total, complete enlightenment is what exactly? What would its real-world consequences be? Critical, Critical thinking, thinking beyond logic. Critical thinking is all too often taught as a set of techniques taken from philosophical logic and presented as a kind of toolkit. Once you have them, you possess critical thinking. Congratulations. But what is that supposed to mean exactly? It is similar to handing over a book on Brazilian jiu-jitsu and assuming a black belt will be owned very, very soon. To think critically is actually something a bit more complex than a set of techniques. It is, in many ways, a practice that tests our attachment to the materials of culture, intellectual, spiritual or otherwise. It represents a long-term commitment to test what we hold to be true and self-evident through dialogue, analysis, critique and questioning, and ideally through the exploration of diverse positions, interpretations, perspectives and lenses. It applies to our emotions, feelings, perceptions and sense of self as much as it applies to identifiable patterns of thinking and beliefs. A recent study on its application in school programs here in Italy showed that without it becoming an ongoing practice, critical thinking is merely a nice idea that produces nothing much at all. One way of considering critical thinking is as open exploration coupled to good questions rooted in epistemic humility. The world of coaching on a good day is rooted in appropriately timed questions that open up inquiry, experience or possibilities. And when it works, it really is an enactment of critical thought as practice. Much of it, though, is really just developing the habit and persisting with it and keeping good company that can help you along in the process, for we need company to get good at it. And that company really shouldn't be too much in agreement with us all the time. Yes, that's one reason why tribal politics and identity politics is so deeply problematic. It despises critical thought, unless, of course, it's aimed at those folks over there. The zombies are coming. <laughs> for the practitioner, an added element really is the discomfort factor. Discomfort factor. Discomfort factor. The discomfort factor. There are six areas to consider. 
Number one, what will I not think critically about? Please ponder that one for a very, very long time before continuing. Have you started? Go on then. Mark down the time, come back later. Two, where do I refuse to critique, question, analyze and risk destabilizing? Yeah, you're going to need to do the same for that one. Go on, we'll see you later. Number three, where am I too comfortable in my assumptions? Okay, I won't repeat the previous instructions, but you probably need a lot of help to figure that one out. Try talking to people who completely disagree with the things you love and make a list. Four, what would happen if I took seriously the critique out there of my beliefs and assumptions? I told you, people don't like this stuff, right? It's called discomfort. I mean, if you think critically about the things you don't like, well, that's kind of easy. But applying it to the things you are very deeply attached to, including theories of non-attachment, <laughs> then the game changes. Now, for some of us, or maybe very few of us, those of us who have a slightly masochistic streak, this stuff is gold. Gold. It's wonderful. And that's one of the reasons why I'm a little bit strange, I guess. I've always loved this kind of thing. Oh well, let's carry on. It's not going to get any easier, I'm afraid. There are two left. Number five. What might happen if I were to entertain the thought experiment that my most cherished beliefs were totally wrong? Now imagine if folks took those kinds of questions on retreat. Wow. Well, that would be interesting. Number six. And then the torture is over. What happens to Buddhist ideas and claims if I genuinely interrogate them, maintain a more critical engagement, and refuse to try and justify each of them through the back door? Yeah, that's a good one. Now, if you're still with me, you're very brave and well done. And the next one is ignorance Now these are among my favorites for they allow the others to be seen and engaged with. Buddhism, of course, has a thing or two to say about ignorance, but heaven forbid we should stop there. The degree with which we enact and cultivate ignorance in ourselves, in groups and societies is impressive. It's stunning. It's difficult for us to accept. Our species really deserves a gold medal in the art of ignorance. And unfortunately, even our intellectual class has developed the habit of late of becoming, oddly enough, anti-intellectual. Hence my use of the phrase voluntary stupidity. I guess the excuses will come out at some point. Ideology told me to do it. My dog ate my critical thinking skills. Or, a favourite of those on the left, I thought I was on the right side of history and therefore it was permissible to push my non-obedient colleagues under the bus. How nice you must be. Epistemic humility is in many ways the natural outcome of thinking ignorance as a topic. 
for there is no end point for us in which we could ever reach something akin to omniscience. This may seem obvious, but the consequences of this recognition are an appreciation of finitude as an existential condition, and an acceptance that we will always be confined by our ignorance, even as we strive to learn more and see more. How can that not inspire humility in you? We are forever confined by our lives, and the humility to recognize how we are always partial observers, partial experiencers, partial knowers, is essential for avoiding seduction into ideological stances of certainty, overconfidence, and overreach. And boy, are we stuck in a climate where this has become rife and has infiltrated the minds and hearts and social practices of those who are supposed to know this stuff. The zombies are coming. <laughs> Five topics to consider. Number one. Have I really reflected on what I do not know and how much I don't know? Two. How would I go about doing this far more honestly and establishing it as an ongoing practice. Three, can I sit with the feelings that accompany this recognition and allow them to destabilize any wishful thinking I might have been holding on to with regards to the limits of what I can know? Four, could we accept that the figure of the Buddha was not omniscient? Can we? What might that tell us about the stories around this archetypal figure? 5. If I cannot eventually know reality as it truly fully is, what am I doing here? When I claim, or when a teacher or a book or a text claims, that it is possible. How should that recognition impact my sense of the practicing life? What needs to change is a consequence. Freedom, freedom, freedom and its critics. Entrapment does not equal no room to move. This could be an Orwellian phrase from 1984, but it is not a paradox. A society may be authoritarian, but some degree of movement will always be possible. A prescribed writing task may be highly constrained, but we may find a creative response to its limits nonetheless. Within this recognition are traces of human dignity. Just as spiritual folks romanticize freedom in a variety of neurotic ways, so do many give up on the concept and miss out on the wiggle room it affords. Freedom as an absolute is a return to square one of the disembodied platonic ideals and abstract absolutes that drive so many Buddhist practitioners onwards forever towards impossible goals. I prefer to think of freedom as freedom from, or freedom to. We may possess or earn the freedom to do something, or gain freedom from something, that is generally where the individual practitioner has room to move. It applies to groups as much as individuals, and a lot of time would be saved if we would only define the containment of what freedom we are trying to obtain or cultivate. 
Metaphysically, the issue often comes down to free will. Any cursory review of the topic should rid most of the silly idea we have complete free will or none at all. So the question, as it almost always does, comes down to degrees. A tension that emerges and that once again picks up on wider social themes is between freedom or rights and duties and responsibilities. Each side is held dysfunctionally by the right or the left, and this tends to dichotomize further what should be a right fascinating ground of exploration on and off cushion. This area covers what might be the major emergence of a practitioner-friendly movement in 20th century philosophy, existentialism. For freewheeling hippies and libertarians, a visit to their table at the Great Feast may prove fruitful. Within the practicing life, it also raises questions of individuality, the freedom to experiment, and conformity to in-group social norms in this Buddhist group or that. Six areas to explore. One. What degree of control do I have over my thoughts, feelings, and bodily functions? Two. To what degree am I caught up in habitual reactions to events? Three. What changes for me subjectively if I hold to the idea I have no choice but to run through life as if it were all predestined? Four. What changes for me subjectively if I hold to the idea I have the complete freedom to do as I please? What weight does more free will have on me? Five. If absolute freedom does not exist, what am I to make of notions of complete enlightenment, total liberation, and full Buddhahood? What would I replace them with whilst dreaming big? 6. To what degree do I permit myself to experiment with practices, suspend beliefs in core principles of Buddhism, my teacher, this book or that, to do things differently? Immanence and transcendence are less statements on preferred ontologies than indicators of the terrain of practice. Change equals the movement we undertake in exploring both meaningfully. Movement towards what, you may ask? Do we go in or out? towards or back to? Do such movements operate within a hierarchy or act as a return to some pre-existing state? These are wonderful and in many ways impossible questions to answer. They describe the contours of practice. Do I meditate to be here now or to reach some objective out there? there, there. The former reflects a practice of imminence, the latter some form of transcendence. If neither our end goals are absolutes, then what we are actually doing when we tell ourselves we are signing up to one or the other is what exactly? Beyond stories of this or that goal being desirable or the core practice of Tradition X being this or that, we are humans establishing relationships with forms of practice and we incubate ideas that shape, effect and lead those practices, consciously and unconsciously, Progress, whatever that might mean, is all too often hindered 
by our inability to shift out of the stories surrounding a practice and our emergent and necessarily intimate relationship with it is often ignored or lost as a consequence. Though I may choose to settle more on an imminent reading of the world of practice, transcendence by its nature means that change goes beyond whatever is current. As mere mortals, the juice is in the ways we entertain ourselves by indulging in the excesses of each, or use either to fortify our imaginary defences. I believe this, so it is so. The world is this way. Buddhism is this and not that. You're wrong, mate. This is where the questions lead me, at least. Four topics. One. Which of these two do I believe I am committed to? What are the consequences of both the choice made and my belief that that is what I am doing? How does my commitment to one or the other shape the kinds of questions I ask and the expectations I have of the practices I engage in? Does the often dysfunctional side of transcendence, some form of escapism, play out in my practice? Four. Does my commitment to an ideal of imminence mean I merely marinate in my own perceptual and experiential limits? What I define, at least in my imagination, as the present moment. There are two more before we get to the end. Social constructivism is a blank slate theory versus innatism. Or, more simply, nature versus nurture. This is the most political of my interventions. For one could argue that our inability, especially on the left, to make peace with this dichotomy is at the heart of much of the culture war and the new forms of ignorance that characterise the stupidity of the excesses of identity politics in the 21st century, in Britain and in America, it is also where change will need to take place for the left to evolve beyond its worst instincts. Its insistence on forever mutating identities stands in contradiction with its obsession with racial essentialism and its new form of obsession with the primitive other, i.e. minorities as noble savages that need saving from the evil white man. Some of you won't like hearing that, and that's fine. That's said without even touching on the minefield that is gender and the contradictory activist claims that jumped schizophrenically from one side to the other of these two. Are we born a certain way? And always that way? Or is it all socially constructed? A bit more work needs to be done on that area, I think. Now, I tend to see wokeism as the next step in the evolution of the New Age, with its gurus, anti-intellectualism, conspiracy theories and desire for pure origins to be reclaimed from evil society and its dehumanising effects. Cue bloody Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who I cannot help but consider responsible for the root myth of the progressive left, pointing thus to capture predominantly by the myth of blank slate for the American and, in tow as always, British left. Of course, the left wasn't always that way, and class politics used to be a thing. Now at its heart, the blank slate theory is a desire to transcend our shared, 
flawed humanity. It seeks to escape the body, history, and our social experiments, and it blames society, the family, capitalism, and other external forces for all of the ills of the moment. If we can just fix those things out there, then it will all be good. As an extreme of a dialectic, it is an indulgent fantasy, and belief in the innate purity of children, and a desire to return to an infantile state of innocence prior to society's corruption. It is also the ground of myths around freedom that are in desperate need of interrogation. Politically, it can be found in the utopias of communism and Nazism and their assorted friends, a point that's often forgotten. In each of these extreme examples, our shared humanity is pushed aside in the race to remake humans in the image of the top ideologues. At its most extreme, innatism claims there is no room to move. It appears in the overbearing desire to fix the world in predictable patterns that produce stability, reliable reality and order. On a personal level, it is heard in the voice of those who claim that this is simply who I am, this is simply the way things are, and this is simply the truth. Change is bullshit, these folks might say. Pessimism is a sign of it. Cynicism towards the desire and the activity and commitment to change is also part of this dynamic. These folks are known to say, look at those silly folk over there on diets, going to the gym, attending protests and campaigning for environmental justice. They are all wasting their time. Where belief in blank slate can produce naivety, innatism can lead to cynicism and resignation to a world that we simply cannot work with, change or improve for those suffering far too much. Needless to say, I consider both positions to be shit, hence my tone. You may even be reading all this, or rather listening to all this, and be chaffing at the bit because I said a few unkind words about the left, of which I remind listeners I have always been part of. Or you might be thinking that this is not how I understand those pairings at all, and intelligent folks who have thought about all this or studied it would say the same. Now, I'm not necessarily in disagreement with them either. The point is to bring these into relational pairs as practice items. In fact, I expect all of you lot to do the same. For those who have not studied these two seriously, it's worth noting that one or the other generally lie in the heart's desire an instinctual sense of the world. Either way, when they exist as unquestioned assumptions that the world is simply this way or that, they operate as soldiers for one side of the debate and turn those soldiers into reactive militia for the dominant ideology of the time and place they are in. Look around you again to see the consequences of investing unconsciously in one of these positions. We are not looking at abstract theory, but theory in practice, and it is taking place across the political spectrum as I say this. In terms of practice questions, it can be fascinating to contemplate the full realization of each position. It can be helpful to follow this up by interrogating where we hold on to one or the other position without even realizing it. Needless to say, I consider both inherently dysfunctional. Neither 
is sufficient for explaining the human condition, and both tend to dehumanize in increasing degrees as the ideologue grips onto them and the echo chambers and tribalism increase. This is one reason why many more measured intellectuals are deeply worried about increasing polarization taking place, despite the many claims that this is all for the good. If English language listeners can set aside their parochialism for a second and look at European countries and their recent history, domestic terrorism from both sides is often the result of losing touch with shared reality beyond these two positions. In returning to the practitioner in their homes or dharma halls, we might ask ourselves which spiritual and social practices do I engage in that encourage me to invest in one or the other as an absolute truth? How much damage does doing so do? What opportunities are open or closed by each position? What utopian ideals are you trying to bring about or protect yourself from by doing so? Start there and interrogate away. And no, those are not the five areas of questions per se. Five areas to consider. One, what would happen to my ideas of practice or activism if I were to abandon the position I am naturally fond of, innateism or blank slate? What changes in how I exist in my world and my commitments if I do? Number two, to what degree do I believe there is a pure or true me or other that merely needs to be discovered or given room to emerge? Three, to what degree do I hold to the idea that we are born a certain way and remain thus and therefore change is more or less impossible or merely superficial? We always end up returning to the way we were. Four, what can you learn by imagining either is totally true for you and others or totally wrong? Take that thought experiment and run with it. It is fascinating. And five, do I hold to the idea that there is an essential Buddha nature somewhere? How does that fit with current understanding in wider society about this dichotomy? Alrighty, wow, if you've made it this far, you are a star. And I hope you'll go back and consider some of these questions. That's really the point. Each of these questions may be one I have considered myself or discussed with partners in crime, clients, fellow practitioners, teachers, and wiser folks who I have had the fortune of learning from. Don't forget the discomfort factor. Now, the last one is the following. In keeping in theme with the life of this podcast, ideology, ideology as persons forming, ideology as systematic means for orientating consciousness to the world, ideology as the refusal of ambiguity, pluralism, and diversity of thought. Now, going all the way back to the first in this series. I began with introducing ideology. I will end with this same topic because I continue to believe that it represents one of the most powerful disruptive tools for the practitioner and for groups engaged in any kind of practice. It is a key antidote to spiritual solipsism, the over-sacralization of the self, 
and the myth that going within will reveal all the great treasures a person could ever need. That said, I am not against the notion of the individual, a well-managed turn within on occasion, and valorizing intuition is personally important. Instinct and the need to sort out personal history and know ourselves as best we can. The simple point to make is that it does not stop there, and that that is not all there is. We are complex creatures after all. The Great Feast reminds us that there are endless models describing what it is to be a person in this world, from religion to psychology, from philosophy A to philosophy Z or Z. There are countless voices telling us what we are and what we are not. This in itself is a sight ripe for interrogation. For Western Buddhists and the spiritual but not religious crowd, the gaping hole regarding the self has long been the role of society and the context in which we live in shaping the perpetual apparatus that we operate within, and in determining to a great degree the ideas available to us, or at the very least, that dominate the ideational landscape we inhabit and move around in. Since we are tribal creatures, and finite, and interpreting mammals, and driven by the familiar, the shared context has a far greater role in shaping our subjective world than most of us will readily admit. The individualism of the last decades has sold the story that we are all unique and special, and who would not want that to be so, right? An exploration of ideology is a sobering wake-up call for the practitioner focused in on the self and bathed in the moors of a Buddhist tradition. Six topics. One. What are the givens that operate in my sense of self? my identity as practitioner, and my role as X. Two, how has the world I grew up in formed me differently compared to someone in context or country X or Y? Three, what are the assumptions operating in my family, personal relationship, work, social group, city, country that I rarely consider, critique or examine? What might happen if those assumptions and their values were suspended for a while? What changes for how I realize and understand the context my life unfolds in, and my idea of being a practitioner within it? 4. How does Buddhism function as ideology for me? 5. What happens if I see Buddhism as one ideology among the many? And by that I mean a system that forms my sense of consciousness. 6. How have I been shaped by the underlying assumptions of my Sangha, tricycle magazine, groups of intellectual or spiritual friends, etc.? Wow, you made it this far. You are a star, and you've got yourself a few practice items to go and play around with, if you so choose. It's not me to tell you what to do, but encourage and offer a few ideas. I would encourage you to continue what I started. Make each item a practice one as you go. Construct good questions that provoke thought, reflection, contemplation and exploration. 
concoct questions that challenge and open up new spaces of thought and feeling. The impact on the practicing life must transcend mere intellectual speculation or focus in on sensory experience. Contemplation suggests we both experience or feel the power of a good question as much as reflect and reason with it. Now, since I put this together for an American website, I shall ditch my Britishness for a moment and engage in shameless self-publicity. These questions come from a few decades of coaching and mentoring and giving a helping hand to those seeking to construct a practicing life. That includes deprogramming out of ideological capture, happily tackling Buddhist and spiritual taboos, get in touch if any of this speaks to you and you would like a helping hand in exploring the interplay between good questions, practice and inquiry. Imperfectbuddha.com coaching is where you should go.